You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show this Tuesday morning. How are you doing, Alex? I'm good. I'm doing well, thank you. Doing well. We have a busy uh, place today. I couldn't find a parking spot. Yes, uh, there's a lot of uh, additional programming and various uh, meetings that are going on presently, which uh, is all to do with uh, this year's preparation of our 25th anniversary on some on some level. On some level, yeah. yeah. All the rooms are booked. We had to move people out of uh, out of my room for the show. It's uh, it's it's fun to see a lot of people here. Yeah, it's uh, it's very uh, energizing. It is energizing. It is energizing. Are you involved in these meetings, or are you uh, just uh, a bystander? Um, on some level, I'm. I'm. You're in and out. In, in and out on most of them, oh, but. That's okay. Yeah, it's, it is. It's, it's nice to see good. the hustle and bustle in here. Excellent. So as you can tell, today's show is live. Our number is 416-245-1534 if you'd like to call in. And please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And we are at the Health Hub RMC on all three sites. And do feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca if you have any questions, concerns, topics you'd like us to cover, anything of the like. We always like to hear from you. So it's been a busy week, uh, Alex. We've had the Raptors at... Uh, 15 wins they're on a tear i now know which movies i should be teeing up to watch from the oscars all is good i know actually uh i actually happened to um see uh joker oh you it, did yeah and that's, happened to win a couple of uh it did he's he's a, a of awards. yeah that's a little dark i'm not it is. sure that's the one of the ones i'm i'm more along the lines of, I want to see Little Women. and mm-hmm. I never got around to, to that. No, I, I saw a few of them. I didn't see the one that won all the awards, Parasite. I, To be perfectly frank, I'd never even heard of it. Exactly. I, I'm like that as well. I had, I had no idea. Yeah, it was, uh, it, well, my mom saw it, actually, and I think it's all subtitles. But I, definitely um, one of the ones that I do want to see. But that it, it was a good night. And, uh, actually, yesterday I went to see, uh, see uh, Bad Boys the the third uh, movie with Will, that, Will that, Smith and uh, Martin was, Lawrence. I heard that was really funny. It was really really enjoyable. Yeah, those yeah. are those are types of movies I do like to watch. Sometimes the the winners of the uh, the award the movies are just um, I don't know too artsy. Some of them for me to you know I, I kind of like to go and, and be entertained. Yeah, I did see nineteen seventeen. It was really good, but it it. Uh, Again, it was more of a... That took, on, took home a few Oscars, it I did. believe, too. Yeah. It did, but it yeah. was good. It was good. It was fun to watch. And this it's only Tuesday, and all this has happened. The weather's been great, and we still have, uh, or I still have, my husband's birthday this week and uh, Valentine's Day. So it's, uh, it's um, a, a busy week, fun week. Who says February is a, a bad month? <laughs> eh? The weather's been great. It's, we're moving on, and uh, let's, let's just get to this before I forget. Uh, <laughs> please do subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, all your favorite podcast platforms. And you can also find all of our podcasts on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is radiomaria.ca, and on my website, which is kathybiasse.com. I think we're up to date with all of the podcasts. Uh, yeah, last week yes. was um, Spiro with The Goat Show, and that's doing quite well. Um, I guess a lot of people are interested in that topic because it's come out now and it's doing quite well. So please do take a listen. We have fantastic guests, great topics, very interesting topics, including uh, today's, which I cannot wait to get to, on uh, compassion with Dr. Treziak. 
But before that, I did segue uh, quite nicely, as you might uh, pick up on there, Alex. I segued into Valentine's Day. And um, let's let's talk about, you know, now it's dinner time, cards and roses and chocolate. So I thought I, I might uh, pick up on one of those and have a little discussion because of the timely topic. So let's talk about chocolate. So all of the chocolate products that we get, whether in boxes or bars, come from cacao seeds, which come from the cacao tree. It's an evergreen tree that grows in South America and West Africa. And cacao seeds, are they come from little pods that are on, or not even that little, that are on the tree trunks of these trees. And they are harvested and uh, made into, and by various means, into all the chocolate products that we have. So cacao is different from cocoa, so we'll make that uh, distinction very clearly. But cacao itself is really a superfood. It contains lots of antioxidants, a good amount of iron, calcium, and magnesium. And it also contains something called uh, theobromine, which is a bitter compound uh, from the seed. And it can help boost mood and energy. And I think that it's this last little piece that may be the reason that chocolate is so widely bought and consumed in and around Valentine's Day because uh, to carry this one step further, this uh, mood boosting and energy has been, um, since the time of the Aztecs, made chocolate uh, be considered to be an aphrodisiac. So uh, here we go in the, the, the line of how chocolate sort of came into be for Valentine's Day. So a little bit of, uh, a, little bit of a ditty on the history of it. But some people are a little bit afraid of having chocolate per se. If you don't get the right chocolate, the dark chocolate, you know, it is uh, quite a sugar spike. Mm-hmm. But I thought in, instead, this may be a new product, a new um, food ingredient that you had not heard of before. It is definitely not as sweet as full-blown chocolate for for certain, but it can be used in a variety of ways. And one of them is in a smoothie. So I thought uh, my Valentine's Day gift for you would be a recipe for one of my favorite. It's really become one of my favorite smoothies, uh, maybe because of the peanut butter ingredient that I have in it that I haven't been able to have. Have, um, in our house, my son has a peanut allergy, and he's not at living at home for the next few months. So we've been sneaking it into the house. But uh, this really is, is such a delicious smoothie for me. So I thought I'd share it for you to try and maybe incorporate a new ingredient into your pantry. So the shake consists of a frozen banana. I mean, if you don't have a frozen banana, obviously you can have a fresh banana. Frozen is best. It just makes it uh, your smoothie that much colder, which I I really appreciate. Uh, A generous teaspoon of peanut butter. Now uh, you play with these ingredients, of course. If you're a huge peanut butter fan, then, you know, add more. If if you prefer not to have peanut butter, you can certainly add almond butter, uh, any seed butter that you like, uh, one to two tablespoons of maple syrup. So this gives it a really nice punch of sweetness without uh, without too much sweetness. So I would start with a one tablespoon, see how it goes. And then if you need it a little bit sweeter, then maybe add a bit more. But maple syrup also adds a whole lot of minerals to your smoothie that um, other things may not. You could certainly replace it with a date if you want. Add a tablespoon of cacao. And then you could also, uh, then I want you to add some um of uh, milk, so you can add any type of milk you like. I usually go with almond milk. And then you can add ice if you want to deepen that, uh, the coldness of it. So you blend all that together, and it is just such a delightful uh, smoothie. You can put a little bit of the cacao on top. If you want to even deepen more of the nutrients, you can add some bee pollen, and I would just sprinkle that on the top. You could certainly add your flax, your hemp, and your chia seed. But it really is a delicious smoothie, so give it a shot. Um, it's it's uh, a nice little treat on Valentine's Day for yourself if you're not going to be getting any treats from somebody else or you can make it for your family. So let's move on then to today's show. We are going to be talking with Dr. Stephen Treziak. He is a physician scientist, chief of medicine at Cooper University Healthcare, and professor and chair of medicine at Cooper Medical School of Rowan University in Camden, New Jersey. Dr. Treziak is a practicing in- intensivist. I practice that word, I'm telling you so many times. A practicing intensivist. Well, then. Thank you. And a National Institute of Health funded clinical researcher with more than 100 
100 publications in the scientific literature, primarily in the field of resuscitation science. Dr. Treziak's publications have been featured in prominent medical journals, such as Journal of American uh, American Medical Association, so that's JAMA, Circulation, and the New England Journal of Medicine. His scientific program has been supported by research grants from the American Heart Association, the National Institute of General Medicine Sciences, and the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, with Dr. Treziak serving in the role of principal investigator. Currently, Dr. Treziak's research is focused on a new field called compassionomics, in which he is studying the scientific effects of compassion on patients, patient care, and those who care for patients. He is author of the best-selling book, Compassionomics, The Revolutionary Scientific Evidence That Caring Makes a Difference. For this work, he was awarded the 2019 Influencers of Healthcare Award by the Philadelphia Inquirer. Dr. Treziak also serves as a member of the Global Compassion Council for nonprofit organization Charter for Compassion. Broadly, Dr. Treziak's mission is to make healthcare more compassionate through science. Dr. Treziak is a graduate of the University of Notre Dame. He earned his medical degree at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and his Master's of Public Health at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He completed his residency training at the University of Illinois at Chicago and his fellowship in critical care medicine at Rush University Medical Center. He is board certified in internal medicine, critical care medicine, emergency medicine, and neurocritical care. This is going to be a wonderful show. Uh, Dr. Treziak has done uh, at least one TED Talk that I've listened to. He's fascinating to listen to. The, the fact that he has researched the emotion of compassion through science is, is truly cutting edge and fits so nicely into what we're doing here on the Health Hub. We have many learning points that are going to come out, but we do want to focus on an understanding of what compassionomics is, why it's important to healthcare in Dr. Treziak's estimation, and can compassion actually fit into and be a part of our Western healthcare system? So we will be back to, doc- to talk to Dr. Treziak in a few minutes.
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Again, our show is live. If you'd like to call in, our number is 416-245-1534. And please do follow us on our social sites. We are at The Health Hub RMC on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Dr. Treziak, thank you so much for joining us, taking the time out of your busy schedule to spread the word of this great topic that you are so deeply uh, embedded with. Kathy, thank you, and many thanks to Alex as well. It's an honor to be on the Health Hub. It's it's such, you know, I found you when I was sort of looking through the TED uh, TED Health Talks, and it, it gripped me, uh, it truly gripped me. Um, I work with cancer patients, and this is an area that, uh, you know, honestly, health practitioners, through no fault of their own, may be too busy, as, as you are a practitioner yourself, and we'd like to hear your story. Uh, compassion just may not fit into the Western model because of timing. How did you stumble upon this area, and why did it, it take hold of you so deeply? Really, it started with uh, a, um, an unexpected question from a 12-year-old. Hmm. So uh, I was studying resuscitation science. I was studying brain injury after cardiac arrest. As you mentioned uh, in the intro, I'm an intensivist, so I'm a specialist in intensive care medicine. And as far as I was concerned, uh, I wasn't in the market for any kind of a change in trajectory in my research program. Uh, everything was going as planned. We were getting grants from the NIH here in the U.S. We were publishing in some of the best journals, and and uh, we were hitting every milestone for success. But then I got this unexpected question from a 12-year-old, and that was my son. So he was preparing a talk for his class at school, and um, he asked me for help. And the question that he posed, that he was posed, that he had to speak to is, what is the most pressing problem of our time? That was in the seventh grade. Now, I don't know what you were doing in the seventh grade, but I was not doing what is the most pressing problem of our time. That's quite deep. Yeah, so um, fast forward to the end of the story. Uh, I challenged him that, uh, of course, there's no one single most pressing problem of our time. But the main question is, what is the most pressing problem for you through your lens of experience? So for him, through his lens of experience as a young person, and then he challenged me back. Uh, and I, I, through a period of introspection, had to ask myself, what's the most pressing problem of our time through my lens of experience as a physician scientist and in healthcare? And as I looked through the biomedical evidence, I became convicted, uh, my eyes were open to a stark reality that in healthcare, there's an abundance of scientific evidence and, um, and other evidence showing that we are in the midst of a compassion crisis. So specifically, I can tell you that in the U.S., uh, there is very rigorous data to show that nearly half of Americans believe that the healthcare system and our healthcare providers are not compassionate. Uh, numerous uh, uh, rigorously conducted scientific studies have shown that physicians miss 60 to 90 percent of opportunities to respond to patients with compassion. And the compassion actually comprises less than 1% of physician statements to patients in the context of an office visit. There's data that in critical care medicine, uh, uh, the healthcare team uh, uh, is um, uh, very rarely uh, expresses compassion to patients and families in the ICU environment. Uh, in office settings, uh, the, there's Mayo Clinic data to show that on average we interrupt people 11 seconds into the statement of their main complaint. Uh, when uh, the evidence shows that they only need 26 seconds on average to actually tell you what's really on their mind. Uh, in the, there's a burnout crisis in healthcare right now where a third or more uh, physicians specifically are suffering from depersonalization, which is an inability to make a personal connection. And in the era of electronic health records, there's very compelling evidence that healthcare providers currently spend more time looking into computer screens than looking their patients in the eyes. So based on all of these data uh, and other data, uh, I conclude uh, that we have a compassion crisis in healthcare. And did you coin this term compassionomics, or has this been an existing study? Well, my colleague Anthony Mazzarelli and I, in, in writing the book Compassionomics, uh, we... Um, we're essentially speaking to uh, an approach 
that, in our opinion, hadn't really been used before. So for decades, there have been very important voices in medicine that have been calling for more help, for more compassion. And if we're being honest, uh, we're not moving the needle at all. Um, and in fact, there's a lot of evidence, including what I already shared with you, that it's actually getting worse, not getting better. And so we thought that a different approach is needed. And so rather than taking a moral or ethical approach to compassion in healthcare or an emotional sentimental approach, we wanted to take, to take a scientific approach uh, because the other approaches weren't working. And the approach that we wanted to take uh, was the approach that a researcher would take. What is the evidence? Let's, let's apply rigorous scientific principles to evaluate the evidence. We, we use a methodology called systematic review. And uh, the term compassionomics uh, came up because we found an abundance of evidence that compassion matters not just in meaningful ways, like we might think, but also in measurable ways. And so we, we call it compassionomics because it's the convergence of the science and the art of medicine. Um, when, I, when I share the data that, that there's a compassion crisis in healthcare, one natural question that could flow from that is, so what? Does compassion really matter? Now, of course, you could say, of course, compassion matters. It's a cornerstone of the art of medicine. We have a moral and ethical imperative to treat patients with compassion. And of course, I agree. And I've always agreed. But that's not the question. The question is, is compassion just the art of medicine? Or are there also evidence-based effects belonging in the science of medicine? So we spent two years uh, going through uh, the uh, biomedical literature through the National Library of Medicine, uh, or PubMed, uh, as it's called, uh, and we found more than 1,000 scientific abstracts that we reviewed. There are more than 280 original science research papers that are buried in the text of Compassionomics and cited in the back if anybody wants to actually go to the literature itself. Um, and um, Compassionomics is, is just our way to frame it as we need, we need to start thinking of compassion in scientific terms because there actually are measurable effects rather than just thinking about it in emotional or, or uh, moral ethical terms as if compassion is just a, a nice to have. It's actually more than that. Uh, the evidence points to the fact that compassion is beneficial for patients, for patient care, and those who care for patients. And in Compassionomics, we try to show you all the data um, of course, intermixed with stories uh, and, 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 and stories that really bring the data to life. But we just took a different approach, and that's where Compassionomics came from. We're still in a Western world, and as much as we um, are trying to bring in more integrative approaches, you know, in the area of, of acupuncture and, and things like that that are recognized scientifically, science moves the needle. We are still of that mindset that science moves the needle. And that's why what you have done and what you've pulled together, I think, is profound because you can move the needle. Um, compassion, one would say, is part of being human. Um, why have we lost this? Did we ever have it in the Western uh, medical system? How You talked about the how, but why is it not a piece of, of the medical system? Well, some would argue that there's been an erosion, that perhaps it was better at one point in time, and, and perhaps that's even a, um, uh, one could argue that we're seeing a decline in compassion in society in general, so perhaps it's just bleeding over into healthcare, no pun intended. So a rigorously conducted meta-analysis published by investigators from the University of Michigan showed that uh, empathy, um, and we can talk about the difference between compassion and empathy if you'd like, mm -hmm. but empathy is declining over time in this study, specifically in young people, like college-age people. It's been declining over the past two decades, and the decline in empathy is actually accelerating over time. That... Uh, in addition to that, uh, a Harvard University study, an education study that enrolled 
middle school and high school age students, ask them what they believe their parents valued the most from them. And the students overwhelmingly said that they valued, uh, that their parents valued their achievements and their accolades more than their kindness for others. And in a very striking peer research study from the U.S. from just a couple years back, fully one-third of Americans uh, acknowledged that they didn't consider compassion to be among their core values. So there are, uh, there's perhaps a societal change in compassion over time, and perhaps it's just a manifesting itself uh, in healthcare. Let's talk about, just before we go to break, and that's really um, a sad note, really it is. Uh, let's talk about the difference between empathy and compassion. Um, my understanding is empathy is, is sort of a natural flow. And can compassion and empathy be learned and taught? Yeah, so, so first let's do the nomenclature piece. So uh, although there is some debate about definitions and nomenclature in the scientific community, most people that do research on compassion define it like this. They define compassion as the emotional response to another's pain or suffering involving the authentic desire to help. So the key words there are response and help. It's different from empathy, which is a closely related term, yet distinct. So empathy is the detecting, feeling, and understanding component Compassion goes beyond empathy in that it requires a responsive action. So we like to say empathy plus action equals compassion. Mm -hmm. Now, empathy is vitally important because if you don't detect and understand and feel somebody's pain and suffering, you'll, you'll miss it entirely. You'll never be motivated to take action with compassion. But compassion goes beyond in to take some sort of responsive action. And there's actually neuroscience uh, data under, to, to um, underscore this distinction. When you see witness, when you bear witness to suffering and someone with pain and suffering, it actually activates the pain centers in your brain. We know this from functional MRI studies, which can detect subtle differences in cerebral blood flow, so blood flow to the brain indicating what part of the brain is being activated at any given point in time. When you witness suffering, it hits you in the pain center of the brain, but when you take action to relieve someone's pain to some extent, it actually activates a different neural structure, an area of the brain that's essentially a reward center. It's associated with positive affect, so positive emotion and affiliation it's a positive experience. So these are not just um, semantics, the difference between empathy and compassion. There's actually uh, neuroscience showing how that they're, they're actually distinct, but vitally important, both of them. So you choose to be compassionate. You feel empathy and you, can, and you make the, the choice to be compassionate. Most scientists would agree with your statement, yes, um, uh, because it requires a responsive action, and you can either choose to respond or not. Interesting. We're going to go to a break here. When we come back, we are going to continue with the conversation and pick up where Dr. Treziak talked about the reward center of compassion and how it not only how compassion not only affects a patient, but it also affects the person who is exhibiting the compassion. And when we come back for our break, we'll talk about that very interesting topic. i 
voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking with Dr. Treziak here about Compassionomics. It's a fascinating conversation, and uh, I would be remiss if we don't get into the the benefits of this for patients and patient givers. I just have so many other ways I want to go, but let's start with this. Dr. Treziak, can you give us uh, how compassion works in, in both areas of healthcare, those receiving it and those giving it? Sure. So when we went through all the evidence, we found uh, more than 100 uh, original science research papers on the effects of compassion for patients. Of course, we can't talk about 100 different papers today, but I can give you the general categories uh, that these effects fit into. Uh, They are physiological, psychological, effects on patient self-care, so for how patients take care of themselves, as well as effects on the quality of health care. So in, in physiological um, uh, terms, compassion for patients can modulate another person's physiology by having immune system effects so they can be um, have lower duration and lower severity of the common cold. Uh, research from Thomas Jefferson University has found that compassion is associated with optimal blood glucose control and fewer complications in patients with diabetes. Perhaps it's because they adhere to their medication regimen more tightly when they trust their physician who cares for them deeply. Another um, example is that compassion can modulate a patient's perception of pain. Uh, We know this uh, from experimental science in laboratories as well as in clinical Uh, studies that have shown that compassion is, uh, it doesn't eliminate pain, of course, because compassion can't do that, but it can attenuate someone's experience of pain to some extent. Pain uh, perception is is extremely uh, complex. It's one of the most complex things in all of medicine. I'm not trying to make it overly simplistic, but there's evidence that compassionate care can lower the perception of pain in patients with low back pain, in patients with uh, abdominal pain due to irritable bowel syndrome, in patients that have post-operative pain, as well as in patients with migraine headaches. Uh, Moving on to psychological domain, so it might be intuitive uh, to you that treating someone with compassion when they have depression symptoms uh, can help attenuate their depression symptoms. That's been shown repeatedly uh, in uh, the scientific literature. Uh, that the person of the therapist is actually a big component of the therapy. Uh, So it's not just the medications that are provided. It's actually the care that's provided. That's also been shown to be beneficial in anxiety and in other areas. Um, Patient self-care is a big category for the effects on patients because if you care deeply about patients and they know that, they feel it, they're more likely to take their medicine. 
And this has been shown over and over and over again. In fact, in some studies, it's even been shown that if if patients are treated with a lack of compassion, they don't even go to the pharmacy in the first place to fill their prescription, probably because they don't trust the physician and they don't believe it's going to work. So there's, there's quite a bit of evidence showing that uh, compassion from caregivers is associated with better patient adherence uh, to uh, prescribed treatment regimens. Then in, in, the, in terms of quality of care, there's a, uh, an abundance of data showing that when there is depersonalization, so an inability to make a personal connection, which really makes compassion impossible, there's more, it's more likely that a medical error is going to occur. So we can't infer causation there that the lack of compassion is caused a medical error, but among people who have less compassion, they're more prone to making errors, and research from the Mayo Clinic has shown that that's most likely because they're more likely to cut corners if they don't have compassion for patients. And then uh, also in terms of quality of care, when you care deeply about patients and they know that, they're more likely to disclose more in the medical interview. They're more likely to tell you what's really on their mind, especially if it's something that's very personal. Um, and they're also more likely to remember your discharge instructions. And so it just enhances the quality of care in all, in all ways. So that, that would be the, the effects, a summary of the effects of compassionate care on patients. And then what about, so have, we've sort of come cross purposes and we've talked about effects on the physician. I know that there are more. You talk about the burnout effect with uh, in the healthcare system and how you've found that compassion, even on a personal note, you found that compassion can alleviate some of the burnout effects. Absolutely. So I mentioned to you early in the program that I'm an intensivist. So I'm a specialist in intensive care medicine. And when you work in the ICU, uh, like the one we have here at Cooper in Camden, uh, it is an everyday occurrence when we're practicing that we meet people and their families on the worst day of their life. So after 20 years nearly of doing that, uh, I came to a stark realization that I had every symptom of burnout myself. Burnout is an epidemic among healthcare providers, uh, not just in the U.S., but broadly, uh, globally, in fact. And uh, burnout is a, is a syndrome, really, of three things. Emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, which is the inability to make a personal connection, and then lastly, a, a feeling like you can't really make a difference. And it is um, affected with, it, it's associated with lower quality of care, it's very serious. It's considered by many people, including me, a public health crisis. And historically, people have thought, well, if you're burned out, it, it, that crushes compassion, so you can't be compassionate. And actually, when I was in training uh, in the 90s, I remember the hidden curriculum of medical education was don't care too much, because if you care a lot, you're more likely to get burned out. And the truth is, when you look in the, the scientific literature, and we went through a thousand scientific abstracts in, in our hunt for this data, for these data, what we found is that uh, we, we don't see a signal of that at all. In fact, what we see is an inverse association. Inverse meaning where there's high compassion, there's low burnout. Where there's high burnout, there's low compassion. And uh, the the way after synthesizing all the evidence, the thing that makes the most sense, the clearest signal that we see is that people who have low compassion probably don't build strong relationships with their parent, with their patients. And when they don't build strong relationships with their patients, they don't get the fulfillment of taking care of people. They don't get the joy out of and joy and fulfillment out of those relationships. And they're more prone to then, than to getting burned out under the same amount of stress. So when I was going through burnout myself, and uh, I call this my N of one experiment, meaning there's one study subject in, in this experiment, and it was me, uh, I, was, I was newly aware of this data that more compassion might actually be an antidote for burnout. And so what I tried to do was, can, rather than 
doing what I called escapism, which was what everybody recommends for burnout, which is like go on vacation, uh, pull back, go on more nature hikes, go do yoga, do all these other things, as if the answer is to just to just get away from your patients as much as possible and then everything will be fine. I thought that was probably not true. I, I Intuitively, I thought that something had to fundamentally change at the point of care and that the answer was in connection, not in escaping. So I decided very intentionally to try to connect more, not less, uh, to sit down more with my patients and families in the ICU, not less, uh, to care more, not less. And, 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 and that also uh, was true for my colleagues, to connect more with my colleagues, to connect more at home relationships build resilience and resilience is resistance to burnout and whether it's our relationships with our patients with our colleagues with anyone around us those relationships are going to build resistance to burnout and when i connected more that's when the fog of burnout began to lift for me so we have a whole chapter dedicated to this in our book uh, compassionomics and uh, there are more than 20 original science, uh, uh, scientific papers referenced in there to show that compassion can be a powerful therapy for the giver, too. Intuitively, I can understand why professionals who are dealing in crisis care would want to put up a protective shield. So you're saying that for these people leaning in, as you use the term in your TED Talk, uh, leaning in and getting involved and getting to know patients that may very well not be with you in the near future is helpful. It's, it's, a, it's a delicate balance. I think that the preponderance of evidence in the scientific literature shows that those, that, those people that just detach and don't care do the worst. Uh, because they will just have the empathy, which is the pain of, of witnessing suffering, but they won't have the fulfilling part of compassion. That being said, if you're, if you're asking me the question, is it possible to care too much to cause yourself some sort of uh, harm by your involvement in, in, in witnessing suffering? Yes, I think there, there's also some intuitiveness that that is also true. There's a neuroscientist at the Max Planck Institute in Germany by the name of Tanya Singer who, uh, who uses the term self-other distinction. Historically, others have, uh, have, have used other terms for it, but I think that the best term for it is the, is the Tanya Singer framing of self-other distinction, meaning you, you bear witness for suffering, you do something to try to alleviate it, but at the same time, you realize, in self-other distinction, you realize that this, this devastating uh, uh, tragedy is not happening to you, and be thankful for that. And so self-other distinction, I think, is, is something that uh, is a, a fascinating area for future research, it is a bit of a defense mechanism, but note in self-other distinction, we're not saying, hey, we're not going to care, we're going to detach and, and pull back. It's saying that while I'm fully engaged with my patient, I'm going to realize and be thankful for the fact that it's not happening to me so that I don't have the uh, psychological and emotional sequela myself and so that I can be resilient and go on to care for others. It, it does. It, I can understand uh, from a physician's point of view where the conflict might be. Um, and, and to have to make this choice to turn off, you know, compassion is, is to me, is, is a basic human decency issue. Um, and just the conflict of having to turn that compassion off for self-preservation in and of itself must be a conflicting thing because we're coming from a place where, you know, physicians want to do what's best for their patient. So having to turn this off in and of itself, this, this ability to extend themselves beyond the screen and, and to take time in an appointment, this must be a very difficult thing for a physician, a, a surgeon, anybody in the healthcare line to do. So that in and of itself must bring a, a level of conflict. But do we have time? Do you have time 
in the Western model to have a piece of your uh, interview, your, your working with your patient, is there actually time for compassion to fit in? So the short answer to your question is yes, and, and I'm going to suggest to you that it is a um, – the, the key here is mindset – so a study published in the Journal of General Internal Medicine by a group of investigators from Harvard University about five years ago showed that, reported that, 56% of physicians said they do not have time for compassion. They don't have time for compassion. So it begs the question, how much time does it actually take? So I'm going to share with you a story, uh, a group of, of investigators from Johns Hopkins University in cancer, which I know is very important to you, Kathy. Mm-hmm. Um, they studied, they did a randomized control trial, so very scientifically rigorous. This was in a group of breast cancer survivors. And the primary outcome measure of their randomized control trial was anxiety among these cancer patients. And if you've ever been touched by cancer or had somebody close to you touched by cancer, you probably know that, that anxiety is a pretty important outcome measure. I've had breast so, cancer myself. So, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you what their intervention was that reduced anxiety in a measurable way in these cancer patients. So I could describe it for you, but I'm just gonna read it to you. And it was a usual care consultation from an oncologist versus special care which was just a little bit more. So here was the message from the oncologist at the beginning of the consultation. I know this is a tough experience to go through, and I want you to know I am here with you. Some of the things that I say to you today may be difficult to understand, so I want you to feel comfortable in stopping me if something I say is confusing or doesn't make sense. We're here together, and we'll go through this together. And then again, at the end of the consultation, the oncologist said, I know this is a tough time for you, and I want to emphasize that we're in this together. I'll be with you each step along the way. A measurable decrease in anxiety, how long did it take? It took 40 seconds. So 40 seconds is all it takes to make a measurable difference uh, for a patient uh, in need. And when we, we've dedicated actually a whole chapter uh, to the issue of time, uh, in the book Compassionomics. It's the the chapter is called The Power of 40 Seconds. And actually, when we went through all the evidence, we found that there were uh, uh, five studies in the literature, all of which reported it taking less than 60 seconds to make a meaningful compassion connection with a patient. So why do we have this disconnect where we say we don't have time, and yet we know it takes less than a minute? I think it's a question of mindset. We, f- we often feel rushed, but when you actually... Uh, consider how long it actually takes. Uh, I often tell people we can go through our days with the same brusque efficiency or we can treat people with compassion. And if anyone had a stopwatch, they would find that it doesn't take any more time to treat people with compassion. I think it's an issue of mindset. When we feel hurried, we're less likely to help. That has been shown over and over again in psychological studies uh, going all the way back to the classical Good Samaritan study from Princeton University uh, decades ago. And so when people are feel like they're more in a rush, they're less likely to help. The question is, are they really in a rush or not? And yes, healthcare is busy, but I think if we don't have 40 seconds, um, I, I think that we should reconsider that because the reality is we probably do. We're just choosing not to, or at least we're in a mindset where it's not possible, if we open our mind to the fact that it really doesn't take any more time, um, then, uh, then, then, then we can treat people consistently with compassion. And it makes a difference. And I'll, I'll, we'll end on a, a personal note on two fronts. Uh, when I met with my oncologist and she told me, uh, we got this. I mean, she wasn't sitting down and holding my hand, and I don't think that's what I needed. She told me, we got this. You know, why are you? I was, you know, I was teary-eyed, and and she said, we got this. Don't worry about things. We've got this, and whatever comes our way, we'll handle it. And that was my turning point. Right then and there, that was my turning point, because I went into a 
bad place when I got diagnosed. It took me a couple of weeks and after other things as well were part of the picture. But when she said to me, we've got this, I had a sense that I can A, get through it and B, I can get through it successfully. And the second piece to what you have said is that in clinic, the complaints that I get the most or the most stressful things when I'm working with cancer patients is not their protocol, is not um, the fact that they have the disease, is it the fact that they cannot communicate with their oncology team. And that is completely disheartening for them. And it makes a huge, huge, huge impact. And that's why I'm so happy that you took the time to be on the show with us, because I think what you're doing can make a profound, a profound statement and effect on on not only, as you mentioned, the, the caregivers, but on patients. It can turn someone's outlook around completely. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. Where can we get your book if we're interested in buying it? So the book is called Compassionomics, The Revolutionary Scientific Evidence That Caring Makes a Difference, and you can get it on Compassionomics.com. Thank you so much, and again, I really, really do appreciate, and, and I support, and I, and I wish you all the success in your ventures. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been quite an honor to be on The Health Hub, Kathy. Thank you very much, and everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. have been listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.